13. Have is difficult to remember. Having experienced your full enjoyment of the artistic matter in the subject, you must next consider it from the material side, as a flat, visual impression, as this is the only form in which it can be expressed on a flat sheet of paper. Note the proportions of the main lines, their shapes and disposition, as if you were drawing it. In fact do the whole drawing in your mind, memorizing the forms and proportions of the different parts, and fix it in your memory to the smallest detail. If only the emotional side of the matter has been remembered, when you come to draw it you will be hopelessly at sea, as it is remarkable how little the memory retains of the appearance of things constantly seen. If no attempt has been made to memorize their visual appearance, the true artist, even when working from nature, works from memory very largely. That is to say, he works to a scheme in tune to some emotional enthusiasm with which the subject has inspired him in the first instance. Nature is always changing, but he does not change the intention of his picture. He always keeps before him the initial impression he sets out to paint, and only selects from nature those things that play up to it. He is a feeble artist, who copies individually the parts of a scene with whatever effect they may have at the moment he is doing them, and then expects the sum total to make a picture. If circumstances permit, it is always as well to make in the first instance a rapid sketch that shall, whatever it may lack, at least contain the main disposition of the masses and lines of your composition seen under the influence of the enthusiasm that has inspired the work. This will be of great value afterwards in freshening your memory when in the labor of the work the original impulse gets dulled. It is seldom that the vitality of this first sketch is surpassed by the completed work, and often, alas, it is far from equaled. In portrait painting and drawing the memory must be used also. A sitter varies very much in the impression he gives on different days, and the artist must in the early sittings, when his mind is fresh, select the aspect he means to paint and afterwards work largely to the memory of this. Always work to a scheme on which you have decided, and do not flounder on in the hope of something turning up as you go along. Your faculties are never so active and prone to see something interesting and fine as when the subject is first presented to them. This is the time to decide your scheme, this is the time to take your fill of the impression you mean to convey. This is the time to learn your subject thoroughly and decide on what you wish the picture to be. And having decided this, work straight on, using nature to support your original impression. But don't be led off by a fresh scheme because others strike you as you go along. New schemes will do so of course, and every new one has a knack of looking better than your original one, but it is not often that this is so, the fact that they are new makes them appear to greater advantage than the original scheme to which you have got accustomed, so that it is not only in working away from nature that the memory is of use, but actually when working directly in front of nature. To sum up, there are two aspects of a subject, the one luxuriating in the sensuous pleasure of it, with all of spiritual significance it may consciously or unconsciously convey, and the other concerned with the lines, tones, shapes, and C, and their rhythmic ordering, by means of which it is to be expressed the matter and manner, as they may be called, and, if the artist's memory is to be of use to him in his work, both these aspects must be memorized, and of the two the second will need the most attention, but although there are these two aspects of the subject, and each must receive separate attention when memorizing it. They are in reality only two aspects of the same thing, which in the act of painting or drawing must be united if a work of art is to a result. When a subject first flashes upon an artist he delights in it as a painted or drawn thing, and feels instinctively the treatment it will require. 
in good draftsmanship the thing felt will guide and govern everything, every touch will be instinct with the thrill of that first impression, the craftsman mind, so laboriously built up, should by now have become an instinct, a second nature, at the direction of a higher consciousness, at such times the right strokes, the right tones come naturally and go on the right place, the artist being only conscious of a fierce joy and a feeling that things are in tune and going well for once, it is the thirst for this glorious enthusiasm, this fusing of matter and manner, this act of giving the spirit within outward form, that spurs the artist on at all times, and it is this that is the wonderful thing about art, XIX procedure in commencing a drawing, don't, as so many students do, start carelessly floundering about with your chalk or charcoal in the hope that something will turn up, it is seldom if ever that an artist puts on paper anything better than he has in his mind before he starts, and usually it is not nearly so good, don't spoil the beauty of a clean sheet of paper by a lot of scribble, try and see in your mind's eye the drawing you mean to do, and then try and make your hand realize it, making the paper more beautiful by every touch you give instead of spoiling it by a slovenly manner of procedure, to know what you want to do and then to do it is the secret of good style and technique, this sounds very commonplace, but it is surprising how few students make it their aim, you may often observe them come in pen a piece of paper on their board, draw a line down the middle, make a few measurements, and start blocking in the drawing without having given the subject to be drawn a thought, as if it were all there done before them, and only needed copying, as a clerk would copy a letter already drafted for him, now, nothing is being said against the practice of drawing guidelines and taking measurements and blocking in your work, this is very necessary in academic work, if rather fettering to expressive drawing, but even in the most academic drawing the artistic intelligence must be used, although that is not the kind of drawing this chapter is particularly referring to, look well at the model first, try and be moved by something in the form that you feel is fine or interesting, and try and see in your mind's eye what sort of drawing you mean to do before touching your paper, in school studies be always unflinchingly honest to the impression the model gives you, but dismiss the camera idea of truth from your mind, Instead of converting yourself into a mechanical instrument for the copying of what is before you, let your drawing be an expression of truth perceived intelligently. Be extremely careful about the first few strokes you put on your paper. The quality of your drawing is often decided in these early stages. If they are vital and expressive, you have started along lines you can develop, and have some hope of doing a good drawing. If they are feeble and poor, the chances are greatly against your getting anything good built upon them. If your start has been bad, pull yourself together, turn your paper over and start afresh, trying to seize upon the big, significant lines and swings in your subject at once. Remember it is much easier to put down a statement correctly than to correct a wrong one, so out with the whole part if you are convinced it is wrong. Train yourself to make direct, accurate statements in your drawings, and don't waste time trying to maneuver a bad drawing into a good one. Stop as soon as you feel you have gone wrong and correct the work in its early stages, instead of rushing on upon the wrong foundation in the vague hope that it will all come right in the end. When out walking, if you find you have taken a wrong road you do not, if you are wise, go on in the hope that the wrong way will lead to the right one, but you turn round and go back to the point at which you left the right road. It is very much the same in drawing and painting, as soon as you become aware that you have got upon the wrong track. Stop and rub out your work until an earlier stage that was right is reached, and start along again from this point.
as your eye gets trained you will more quickly perceive when you have done a wrong stroke, and be able to correct it before having gone very far along the wrong road, do not work too long without giving your eye a little rest, a few moments will be quite sufficient, if things won't come, stop a minute, the eye often gets fatigued very quickly and refuses to see truly, but soon revives if rested a minute or two, do not go laboring at a drawing when your mind is not working, you are not doing any good, and probably are spoiling any good you have already done, pull yourself together, and ask what it is you are trying to express, and having got this idea firmly fixed in your mind, go for your drawing with the determination that it shall express it, all this will sound very trite to students of any metal, but there are large numbers who waste no end of time working in a purely mechanical, lifeless way, and with their minds anywhere but concentrated upon the work before them, and if the mind is not working, the work of the hand will be of no account. My own experience is that one has constantly to be making fresh effort during the procedure of the work. The mind is apt to tire and needs rousing continually. Otherwise the work will lack the impulse that shall make it vital. Particularly is this so in the final stages of a drawing or painting. When, in adding details and small refinements, it is doubly necessary for the mind to be on fire with the initial impulse or the main qualities will be obscured and the result enfeebled by these smaller matters. Do not rub out, if you can possibly help it, in drawings that aim at artistic expression, in academic work, where artistic feeling is less important than the discipline of your faculties. You may, of course, do so, but even here as little as possible. In beautiful drawing of any facility it has a weakening effect, somewhat similar to that produced by a person stopping in the middle of a witty or brilliant remark to correct a word, if a wrong line is made, it is left in by the side of the right one in the drawing of many of the masters, but the great aim of the draftsman should be to train himself to draw cleanly and fearlessly, hand and eye going together, but this state of things cannot be expected for some time, let painstaking accuracy be your aim for a long time. When your eye and hand have acquired the power of seeing and expressing on paper with some degree of accuracy what you see, you will find facility and quickness of execution will come of their own accord. In drawing of any expressive power this quickness and facility of execution are absolutely essential. The waves of emotion, under the influence of which the eye really sees in any artistic sense, do not last long enough to allow the slow, painstaking manner of execution. There must be no hitch in the machinery of expression when the consciousness is alive to the realization of something fine. Fluency of hand and accuracy of eye are the things your academic studies should have taught you, and these powers will be needed if you are to catch the expression of any of the finer things in form that constitute good drawing. Try and express yourself in as simple, not as complicated a manner as possible. Let every touch mean something, and if you don't see what to do next, Don't fill in the time by meaningless shading and scribbling until you do. Wait a while. Rest your eye by looking away. And then see if you cannot find something right that needs doing. Before beginning a drawing, it is not a bad idea to study carefully the work of some master draftsman whom the subject to be drawn may suggest. If you do this carefully and thoughtfully, and take in a full enjoyment, your eye will unconsciously be led to see in nature some of the qualities of the master's work and you will see the subject to be drawn as a much finer thing than would have been the case had you come to it with your eye unprepared in any way. Reproductions are now so good and cheap that the best drawings in the world can be had for a few pence, and every student should begin collecting reproductions of the things that interest him. This is not the place to discuss questions of health, 
but perhaps it will not be thought grandmotherly to mention the extreme importance of nervous vitality in a fine draftsman, and how his life should be ordered on such healthy lines that he has at his command the maximum instead of the minimum of this faculty. After a certain point, it is a question of vitality how far an artist is likely to go in art, given to men of equal ability, the one leading a careless life and the other a healthy one. As far as a healthy one is possible to such a supersensitive creature as an artist, there can be no doubt as to the result. It is because there is still a lingering idea in the minds of many that an artist must lead a dissipated life or he is not really an artist, that one feels it necessary to mention the subject. This idea has evidently arisen from the inability of the average person to associate an unconventional mode of life with anything but riotous dissipation. A conventional life is not the only wholesome form of existence and is certainly a most unwholesome and deadening form to the artist, and neither is a dissipated life the only unconventional one open to him. It is as well that the young student should know this, and be led early to take great care of that most valuable of studio properties, vigorous health, XX materials. The materials in which the artist works are of the greatest importance in determining what qualities in the infinite complexity of nature he selects for expression and the good draftsman will find out the particular ones that belong to whatever medium he selects for his drawing, and be careful never to attempt more than it is capable of doing. Every material he works with possesses certain vital qualities peculiar to itself, and it is his business to find out what these are and use them to the advantage of his drawing. When one is working with, say, pen and ink, the necessity for selecting only certain things is obvious enough. But when a medium with the vast capacity of oil paint is being used, the principle of its governing the nature of the work is more often lost sight of. So near can oil paint approach an actual illusion of natural appearances, that much misdirected effort has been wasted on this object, all enjoyment of the medium being subordinated to a meretricious attempt to deceive the eye. And I believe a popular idea of the art of painting is that it exists chiefly to produce this deception. No vital expression of nature can be achieved without the aid of the particular vitality possessed by the medium with which one is working. If this is lost sight of and the eye is tricked into thinking that it is looking at real nature, it is not a fine picture. Art is not a substitute for nature, but an expression of feeling produced in the consciousness of the artist, and intimately associated with the material through which it is expressed in his work inspired, it may be, in the first instance, by something seen and expressed by him in painted symbols as true to nature as he can make them while keeping in tune to the emotional idea that prompted the work, but never regarded by the fine artist as anything but painted symbols nevertheless. Never for one moment does he intend you to forget that it is a painted picture you are looking at. However naturalistic the treatment his theme may demand, in the earlier history of art it was not so necessary to insist on the limitations imposed by different mediums, with their more limited knowledge of the phenomena of vision. The early masters had not the same opportunities of going astray in this respect, but now that the whole field of vision has been discovered, and that the subtlest effects of light and atmosphere are capable of being represented, it has become necessary to decide how far complete accuracy of representation will help the particular impression you may intend your picture or drawing to create. The danger is that in producing a complete illusion of representation, the particular vitality of your medium with all the expressive power it is capable of yielding, may be lost. Perhaps the chief difference between the great masters of the past and many modern painters is the neglect of this principle. They represented nature in terms of whatever medium they worked in and never overstepped this limitation. Modern artists, particularly in the 19th century, often attempted to copy nature, 
the medium being subordinated to the attempt to make it look like the real thing. In the same way, the drawings of the great masters were drawings. They did not attempt anything with a point that a point was not capable of expressing. The drawings of many modern artists are full of attempts to express tone and color effects, things entirely outside the true province of drawing. The small but infinitely important part of nature that pure drawing is capable of conveying has been neglected, and line work, until recently, went out of fashion in our schools. There is something that makes for power in the limitations your materials impose. Many artists whose work in some of the more limited mediums is fine, are utterly feeble when they attempt one with so few restrictions as oil paint. If students could only be induced to impose more restraint upon themselves when they attempt so difficult a medium as paint, it would be greatly to the advantage of their work, beginning first with monochrome in three tones, as explained in a former chapter, they might then take four figure work ivory black and Venetian red, it is surprising what an amount of color effect can be got with this simple means, and how much can be learned about the relative positions of the warm and cold colors, do not attempt the full range of tone at first, but keep the darks rather lighter and the lights darker than nature. Attempt the full scale of tone only when you have acquired sufficient experience with the simpler range, and gradually add more colors as you learn to master a few. But restraints are not so fashionable just now as unbridled license. Art students start in with a palette full of the most amazing colors, producing results that it were better not to discuss. It is a wise man who can discover his limitations and select a medium the capacities of which just tally with his own. To discover this, it is advisable to try many and below is a short description of the chief ones used by the draftsmen, but very little can be said about them, and very little idea of their capacities given in a written description, they must be handled by the student, and are no doubt capable of many more qualities than have yet been got out of them, this well-known medium is one of the most beautiful for pure line work, and its use is an excellent training to the eye and hand in precision of observation, perhaps this is why it has not been so popular in our art schools lately, when the charms of severe discipline are not so much in favor as they should be, it is the first medium we are given to draw with, and as the handiest and most convenient is unrivaled for sketchbook use, it is made in a large variety of degrees, from the hardest and grayest to the softest and blackest, and is too well known to need much description, it does not need fixing, for pure line drawing nothing equals it, except silver point, and great draftsmen, like in grays, have always loved it. It does not lend itself so readily to any form of mass drawing, although it is sometimes used for this purpose. The offensive shine that occurs if dark masses are introduced is against its use in any but very lightly shaded work. Its charm is the extreme delicacy of its gray-black lines, similar to a lead pencil, and of even greater delicacy, is silver point drawing, a more ancient method. It consists in drawing with a silver point on paper the surface of which has been treated with a faint wash of Chinese white. Without this wash the point will not make a mark. For extreme delicacy and purity of line no medium can surpass this method. And for the expression of a beautiful line, such as a profile, nothing could be more suitable than a silver point. As a training to the eye and hand also, it is of great value, as no rubbing out of any sort is possible. And eye and hand must work together with great exactness. The discipline of silver point drawing is to be recommended as a corrective to the picturesque vagaries of charcoal work. A gold point, giving a warmer line, can also be used in the same way as a silver point, the paper first having been treated with Chinese white, two extreme points of view from which the rendering of form can be approached have been explained, 
and it has been suggested that students should study them both separately in the first instance, as they each have different things to teach, of the mediums that are best sweet to a drawing combining both points of view. The first and most popular is charcoal. Charcoal is made in many different degrees of hardness and softness, the harder varieties being capable of quite a fine point. A chisel-shaped point is the most convenient, as it does not wear away so quickly, and if the broad side of the chisel point is used when a dark mass is wanted, the edge can constantly be kept sharp. With this edge a very fine line can be drawn. Charcoal works with great freedom, and answers readily when forceful expression is wanted. It is much more like painting than any other form of drawing. A wide piece of charcoal making a wide mark similar to a brush. The delicacy and lightness with which it has to be handled is also much more like the handling of a brush than any other point drawing. When rubbed with the finger, it sheds a soft gray tone over the whole work. With a piece of bread pressed by thumb and finger into a pellet, highlights can be taken out with the precision of white chalk, or rubber can be used. Bread island perhaps, the best as it does not smudge the charcoal but lifts it readily off. When rubbed with the finger, the darks, of course, are lightened in tone. It is therefore full to draw in the general proportions roughly and rub down in this way. You then have a middle tone over the work, with the rough drawing showing through. Now proceed carefully to draw your lights with bread or rubber, and your shadows with charcoal, in much the same manner as you did in the monochrome exercises already described. All preliminary setting out of your work on canvas is usually done with charcoal, which must of course be fixed with a spray diffuser. For large work, such as a full-length portrait, sticks of charcoal nearly an inch in diameter are made, and a long swinging line can be done without their breaking. For drawings that are intended as things of beauty in themselves, and are not merely done as a preparatory study for a painting, charcoal is perhaps not so refined a medium as a great many others. It is too much like painting to have the particular beauties of a drawing, and too much like drawing to have the qualities of a painting. However, some beautiful things have been done with it. It is full in doing studies where much finish is desired. To fix the work slightly when drawn in and carried some way on, you can work over this again without continually rubbing out with your hand what you have already drawn. If necessary you can rub out with a hard piece of rubber any parts that have already been fixed, or even scrape with a penknife but this is not advisable for anything but an academic study, or working drawings, as it spoils the beauty and freshness of charcoal work. Studies done in this medium can also be finished with conch chalk. There is also an artificial charcoal put up in sticks, that is very good for refined work. It has some advantages over natural charcoal, in that there are no knots and it works much more evenly. The best natural charcoal I have used is the French make known as Fusain Rouge. It is made in three degrees, number three being the softest, and, of course, the blackest, but some of the ordinary Venetian and vine charcoals sold are good, but don't get the cheaper varieties, a bad piece of charcoal is worse than useless, charcoal is fixed by means of a solution of white shellac dissolved in spirits of wine, blown on with a spray diffuser, this is sold by the artist's colorman, or can be easily made by the student, it lightly deposits a thin film of shellac over the work acting as a varnish and preventing its rubbing off. Charcoal is not on the whole the medium an artist with a pure love of form selects, but rather that of the painter, who uses it when his brushes and paints are not handy. A delightful medium that can be used for either pure line work or a mixed method of drawing, is red chalk. This natural red earth is one of the most ancient materials for drawing. It is a lovely Venetian red in color, and works well in the natural state. 
if you get a good piece, it is sold by the ounce, and it is advisable to try the pieces as they vary very much, some being hard and gritty and some more soft and smooth, it is also made by Masros, Cond of Paris and sticks artificially prepared, these work well and are never gritty, but are not so hard as the natural chalk, and consequently wear away quickly and do not make fine lines as well, red chalk when rubbed with the finger or a rag spreads evenly on paper, and produces a middle tone on which lights can be drawn with rubber or bread, sticks of hard, plant rubber are everywhere sold, which, cut in a chisel shape, work beautifully on red chalk drawings, bread is also excellent when a softer light is wanted, you can continually correct and redraw in this medium by rubbing it with the finger or a rag, thus destroying the lights and shadows to a large extent, and enabling you to draw them again more carefully. For this reason red chalk is greatly to be recommended for making drawings for a picture where much fumbling may be necessary before you find what you want, and like charcoal, it hardly needs fixing, and much more intimate study of the forms can be got into it. Most of the drawings by the author reproduced in this book are done in this medium. For drawings intended to have a separate existence it is one of the prettiest mediums. In fact, this is the danger to the student while studying. Your drawing looks so much at its best that you are apt to be satisfied too soon. But for portrait drawings there is no medium to equal it. Additional quality of dark is occasionally got by mixing a little of this red chalk in a powdered state with water and a very little gum arabic. This can be applied with a sable brush as in watercolor painting, and makes a rich velvety dark. It is necessary to select your paper with some care. The ordinary paper has too much size on it. This is picked up by the chalk and will prevent its marking. A paper with little size is best, or old paper where the size has perished. I find an OW paper, made for printing etchings, as good as any for ordinary work. It is not perfect, but works very well. What one wants is the smoothest paper without a faced and hot-pressed surface, and it is difficult to find. Occasionally black chalk is used with the red to add strength to it and some draftsmen use it with the red in such a manner as to produce almost a full-color effect. Holbein, who used this medium largely, tinted the paper in most of his portrait drawings, varying the tint very much, and sometimes using zinc white as a wash, which enabled him to supplement his work with a silver point line here and there, and also got over any difficulty the size in the paper might cause. His aim seems to have been to select a few essential things in a head and draw them with great finality and exactness. In many of the drawings the earlier work has been done with red or black chalk and then rubbed down and the drawing redone with either a brush and some of the chalk rubbed up with water and gum or a silver point line of great purity. While in others he has tinted the paper with watercolor and rubbed this away to the white paper where he wanted a light. Or Chinese white has been used for the same purpose. Black conch is a hard black chalk made in small sticks of different degrees. It is also put up in cedar pencils, rather more gritty than red chalk or charcoal. It is a favorite medium with some, and can be used with advantage to supplement charcoal when more precision and definition are wanted. It has very much the same quality of line and so does not show as a different medium. It can be rubbed like charcoal and red chalk and will spread a tone over the paper in very much the same way. Carbon pencils are similar to conch but smoother in working and do not rub. White chalk is sometimes used on toned paper to draw the lights, the paper serving as a half-tone while the shadows and outlines are drawn in black or red. In this kind of drawing the chalk should never be allowed to come in contact with the black or red chalk of the shadows. The half-tone of the paper should always be between them. 
for rubbed work white pastel is better than the ordinary white chalk sold for drawing, as it is not so hard. A drawing done in this method with white pastel and red chalk is reproduced on page 46 transcriber's note, play Heidi, and one with the hard white chalk. On page 260 transcriber's note, play Elivy. This is the method commonly used for making studies of drapery. The extreme rapidity with which the position of the lights and shadows can be expressed being of great importance when so unstable a subject as an arrangement of drapery is being drawn. Lithography as a means of artistic reproduction has suffered much in public esteem by being put to all manner of inartistic trade uses. It is really one of the most wonderful means of reproducing an artist's actual work. The result being, in most cases, so identical with the original that, seen together, if the original drawing has been done on paper, it is almost impossible to distinguish any difference. And of course, as in etching, it is the prints that are really the originals. The initial work is only done as a means of producing these. A drawing is made on a lithographic stone. That island a piece of limestone that has been prepared with an almost perfectly smooth surface. The chalk used is a special kind of a greasy nature, and is made in several degrees of hardness and softness. No rubbing out is possible, but lines can be scratched out with a knife, or parts made lighter by white lines being drawn by a knife over them. A great range of freedom and variety is possible in these initial drawings on stone. The chalk can be rubbed up with a little water. L.